seven o'clock. Do you know where your freedom is? Because we get around Talking about my generation Let me take you a couple Talking about my generation I hope I die before I get old Talking about my generation My generation Why don't you all just fade away Talking about my generation And don't try to dig what we all coffee it's it's 10 o'clock in the morning i always here. feel so guilty about this <laughs> i'm getting you out of bed to record podcasts i always feel terrible about that oh, don't worry about it you're not <laughs> even the most drastic time difference uh of people i chat with oh no right you've done shows with people in australia right that must be fun yeah yeah we we, <laughs> we decide who do who does what uh friday night here is saturday morning there but thank you for being down to chat again Oh no, it's a, it's a it's a huge pleasure. I, I, I am sorry I didn't make it sooner. I, we talked about a couple of projects, didn't we? We kicked back and forth, and it just hasn't quite happened. But uh, no, it's a really glad to be coming back and talking to you. It's been too long, too long. If if any of this makes it into the show, because I am already recording. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's not me like too. we haven't talked at all. We just haven't chatted. And but we did some cool. Robo talk talk Robocop talk since the last. We time. certainly did. Yeah, yeah, that, we certainly did. That was great. Yeah, that was really cool um actually that's interesting we could go, i could kind of mention that because i'm putting that um i haven't kind of officially announced this yet because i never really officially announce anything that's what i've realized i just do shit you know <laughs> <laughs> just kind of tell me other people like what are you and i'm like oh yeah i'm doing that now um i've put so robocop's gonna be on hiatus for a little while but what i'm gonna do instead is actually i'm, I'm gonna be doing a, a series of watching tommy instead Ooh. um because the book's coming out and because um i think that the film is kind of uh batshit enough that it's worth watching with a few different people to get a few different kind of angles on um so uh, uh yeah robocop will be back but i think i'm gonna do a six to eight month kind of run of uh, watching tommy with kit power instead so hell uh, 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I've recorded a pilot, which wasn't actually a commentary track. So uh, Neil Snowden, who's the editor at Electric Dreamhouse Press, who published the the Tommy book that, uh, that they're putting out that I wrote, um, I, I interviewed him for the pilot to just talk, you know, about about Ken Russell as a director and about Tommy and also about Electric Dreamhouse and the project that they do. Because they do this series of, I mean, Tommy's, oh, I want to say like the seventh or eighth book they've done in this series. And they're basically like, they're single author novella length. So you're talking like sort of 15 to 20,000 words normally, although a couple of them have gone longer. But they're about like cult cinema, you know, and it's a single movie, single writer talking about a single movie. So um, they've done one on, you know, they've done Martin, uh, they've done Firewalk With Me, um, and a few others. And, and each time he just invites someone who's completely obsessed with the film to write about it. So there are always these really kind of personal journeys and personal relationships to the movies. It's just a fantastic series of books. You know, they're all just brilliant because they're all written by people who are just totally, totally turned on by what they're writing about and really excited to get the chance to kind of geek out about their favorite movie, you know? Um, so yeah, so the pilot episode's me interviewing him, and I've got that in the can. That will be releasing. I think that's going out Monday actually, so it might be released by the time this comes out. Oh, um, wonderful. But yeah, so that's the pilot. But then I'll be doing the usual thing of you know getting people on, and we'll we'll sit and hit play at the same time and watch. Because I'm just like Tommy's such a it's such a visceral movie, you know, and like um, I think it's one of those are like I mean Robocop's got those moments where you kind of respond to what you're seeing on on screen almost involuntarily. But Tommy, it's just so intense. I'm really. I'm really curious to see how it works as a commentary track. I, I, I wonder how viable it's going to be as a podcast. <laughs> you never know. I'm, there might be a lot more singing along than people do in RoboCop. Well, that's, that's yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, if there's any of that, that will be that will be new. But I also think, like, I just, I mean, it's funny listening back to the RoboCop episodes. Like, you, you'll get, like, it'll often happen where you'll be in the middle of a conversation or something, and then something happens on camera, and, it, and both both the commentators just go, oh, you know, or something like that. <laughs> And I think like there's there's quite a lot of scope for that with Tommy. I think it's going to be quite hard to hold a conversation because it just the movie just throws images at you, doesn't it? You know, it's just so kind of kaleidoscopic and so kind of big. You know, it just it just grabs your attention the whole time. So uh, yeah, I, I have absolutely no idea if it's going to work, but you know, I think it will be a fun project to try anyway. I feel like I say definitely quite a bit too much, but I, <laughs> it's very much useful in this exact moment. I would definitely want to check that out. Uh, I, I think it you you, know, you are. I do not even pretend that I'm as big of a Tommy fan as you, but right. I love Tommy. I love the yeah. Who. I've got yeah. childhood memories. Uh, we're gonna get into this. Oh, if, good. Oh, yeah. Um, before we get any further, if yep. you didn't know, dear listener, I am here <laughs> once again with Kit Power. We are not talking about government assassins. Unless maybe that's an interpretation of the whole last act of Tommy, but I doubt it. <laughs> um, Feels like a stretch, but we'll see, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But Kit Power, wonderful fellow human being, you have a book coming out. Yes, sir. Yes, I do. You alluded to it or referenced it earlier in conversation, but tell, 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 tell me and us officially about it. What's sure. So, okay. So, um, so I talked to you. All right. So I was talking about Electric Dreamhouse Press, which is the publisher, and Neil Snowden, who's the editor of that. So the way this came about was, um, uh, I mean, Tommy's been an obsession of mine. Uh, I've, uh, I'm glad to hear you said you had childhood memories, because I have very vivid childhood memories of Tommy. So we'll get to that, I'm sure. But it was, uh, I, I do a, I write a blog series for for the website Ginger Nuts, a horror called My Life in Horror, where every month I write about 
some childhood influence something that's really kind of warped me as a kid and really informed my my aesthetics as an adult or my creative kind of um approach to things uh, and it's very wide ranging you know i've written about everything from you know uh the kind of movies you'd expect me to have seen at that. i mean obviously robocop was kind of the first essay i did in the series um and stuff like i mean you know the wasp album the headless children that was a big influence on me when i was 11 um i've written about 9 11 itself because that was a kind of moment of real life horror that obviously had an impact on on everybody that saw it which was pretty much everybody um so it's a very wide-ranging series and i always knew i was going to have to write an entry on tommy because of because of this experience i had as a kid where i saw it just way too young and it completely fucked me up um and to prepare for that and also just as a kind of general thing i went on a couple of podcasts so i went on um the first one i went on was they must be destroyed on site uh which is um so that's lee and daniel's podcast and th- th- we did we talked about tommy on there and and that's and then after coming off that podcast i wrote the essay and i sent it to to jim for ginger nuts horror to publish and then just before that published but after the podcast came out neil snowden got in touch with me and said i've just heard your podcast that you did on tommy uh for for they must be destroyed so he said do you want to do you want to write the book because i'm i've always wanted to do ken russell to cover ken russell with dreamhouse press and it sounds to me like you're the ideal candidate and i i went back to him and said you know that's obviously incredibly flattering and have a look at the ginger nuts essay and see if you still feel that way but i said the other thing was like i'm not an expert especially on ken russell like i i, I like the who a lot and i can talk a bit about the who certainly in their imperial phase with a certain amount of insight i guess or at least enthusiasm. But Russell, as a filmmaker, I only have very sketchy understanding of, except for Tommy, which obviously I have this obsession with. So I said, you know, it won't be a it won't be a film expert's point of view. It will be it really will be mine, and it will be my it will be like a my life in horror essay, an extended essay. I'll just really get into the guts of my relationship with the work. And they all said, no, that's what I want. So <laughs> so I said, great. I mean, that's you know, as a writer, that's pretty much your dream thing to hear from an editor is to hear you know them say i want exactly what you already do yeah right (laughs) (laughs) i was like okay then show me where to sign um so and then and then i put the you know the essay went up on ginger nuts and and uh, neil basically said okay that's our introduction that's the first chapter you know that sets the scene so that went straight in pretty much verbatim i think and then i spent an absolute shit ton of time researching uh you know i read um a couple of a couple of books about the movie one of them was a, a pocket guide that came out fairly recently but another one was by townsend and a friend of his that came out only like a year or two after the film itself came out so it's more contemporaneous and it's a, it was a weird little book um and it was sort of because it's you know it's somewhere between a puff piece and a, a real book if you see what i mean like it's very much kind of the publicity side of it almost um but it it still gave me a good insight to Townsend's perspective on the whole project and what he was trying to get done. And there was a lengthy interview with Russell as well, which was helpful. Um, so I did that. I, I watched the film with a commentary track. I watched all of the extras on the DVD. I went and watched interviews and YouTube that they had with, you know, with uh, particularly with Townsend and, and Daltrey, because they have interesting, uh, slightly different perspectives on the film, which I really enjoy. Um, and then I just, I just mapped it out. So the way the book is put together is, there's uh, what is it oh god you see i've finished writing it now so i don't i can't I'm not retain any of this information i think there's like 28 songs in tommy so each song represents basically an essay so i use each song as a as a jumping off point to talk about a particular aspect of the movie and sometimes the essay will connect very much to the scene in the movie that the song represents but other times i go quite off piste i'll i mean for example when it's uh when it's the chapter about um sally simpson ah so the track 20 so the yeah, so so the, the the chapter on Sally Simpson I use as an opportunity to write about the Who live at Leeds performance of Tommy, 
because it's, uh, you know, the who do a live performance in the Sally Simpson sequence. The sequence itself, I mean, there's some stuff you can say about it, and I do say a little bit about it, but really it's not it's not a massively, I don't think a massively pivotal scene in the movie. So I use that as an opportunity to go off and talk about the the, the who live experience, especially around that era, because I think that's that needed to be covered. You know, it's an important aspect of what was going on. Um, so that's, yeah, so that's it in a nutshell. That's the book, or not really in a nutshell, an incredibly long rambling uh, diatribe but that's the book yeah so it's coming out i've been told it should be out we should be launching it at edgelit at derby which is uh, a week on saturday so it's like the 13th i think of july and it should be available online after that and it's a it's a limited edition hardback um and i have to say the, the books these guys put out are just gorgeous they're just absolutely beautiful objects as well as you know as well as you know the, the kind of the work that goes into them they're just wonderful books so i, I it it's it's absolutely a milestone project for me as a writer this i can't tell you because the non-fiction side of things i've really have just done out of love i've just done for fun it's been the, the blogs and that and that kind of thing um and to get this kind of level of professional recognition for my non-fiction writing especially about a movie i love so much and have such a strong and complicated relationship to uh, it's just a thrill man it's just an absolute thrill to have this thing coming out i'm i'm super stoked i would be looking forward to this book had i not known you <laughs> but but uh knowing you just adds extra you know it, it'll almost feel like you're telling me a story and it does oh that's very um, kind Thank you know you. i got to see a little bit of the book and yeah i it, it was hard for me to put it down I, I was probably neglecting my regular life duties and oh well uh, that's 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 the purpose of my writing so good <laughs> 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 that's what i live to do basically <laughs> thank you that's very kind that's but very yeah, kind I, I, <laughs> yeah it's it is something to keep your eyes on, and I think it would be interesting to somebody who doesn't really know. Uh, obviously, you, you should know about the the album and the movie, and wasn't there a live performance, something televised? Uh, yeah, so there's, well, there's been a few. Um, there's, uh, they did, I mean, they, they did a, they did a DVD from the tour they did a lot, they did it last year, The Who. Um, and there's a there's a there's a performance of that you can get. Uh, I think Daltrey's just had uh, hit an orchestral version of Tommy live that's just gone in, oh, wow. just literally come out in the last week or two, I think, which has done incredible business. Um, so yeah, it's still. I mean, that's the, that's one of the interesting things about Tommy is that it just it keeps coming back and the who keep coming back to it in various forms and it keeps permeating its way through pop culture. It's really fascinating to me. Um, I mean, one of the things I write about in the book is there's this moment where Townsend's, you know, he's recording Quadrophenia, which he was hoping was going to replace Tommy in the live sets. You know, he they'd been playing Tommy live in its entirety for like four years or something by that point. And, you know, Townsend was getting really worried that he wasn't going to be able to top it and that it was going to be, you know, become a millstone. They were going to become like a tribute act, you know what I mean, <laughs> to their own, their own success. And he... So Quadrophenia was this really, really intense effort on his part after the Lifehouse project failed and ended up with Who's Next. Quadrophenia was meant to be the one that replaced Tommy. It was meant to be the new, you know, to reconnect with the audience and to kind of build bridges back with the mod movement and that kind of thing. And he was really trying really hard to do that. And he's literally kind of completing the mixing for Quadrophenia when suddenly the movie happens. And he's dragged right back into Tommy all over again, you know. Um, and he's just like, it's really weird. It's like Tommy becomes this kind of like Rome of the Ancient Mariner thing where he just has to keep telling the story over and over again. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. But, yeah, it's, and as I say, Daltrey's got a thing coming out. I think it came out a couple of weeks ago of a, a, an orchestral version, which is the second orchestral version of Tommy that's out. So I think there's like nine different Tommy albums you can get now if you really want them. <laughs> 
I even I I've I've never had an eight track player in my life, but even in my late teens, early twenties, I bought Tommy on eight track at a flea market. Wow! I oh, might still have that. it somewhere. But... Oh, that's fantastic! What a great object, though. I mean, yeah. just what a fantastic thing to have. It was bright red. I'll look around in my boxes in the basement, and if, yeah, I, if man. I find it, I'll, I'll send you a picture. Send me a photo. Yeah, man, I'd love to see that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is. I mean, I've got, you know, I, I got back into vinyl in the last sort of few years, and I've got um, I've got the original release on vinyl, which my I think my dad picked up, and it is, it is an original pressing as far as I can tell, uh, the double album. But then I've also got the movie soundtrack on vinyl, and I've got the orchestral version, the, Royal, the London Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, with with loads of guest singers, that's got like Rod Stewart as the pinball wizard, and can't remember who does Acid Queen, but you know there's all these different guest singers doing that. Um, and then there's the you know there's the, I mean I haven't got it, but there's, they did a West End uh, and a Broadway musical version as well, and the, there was a cast album off the back of that. And then there's the more recent live ones as well. So yeah, it's just uh, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of Tommy out there. And of course my favourite version of it is the live at Leeds performance, which came out a few years ago, and the, they did a, a double disc. Uh, digitally remastered live at Leeds, which included the Tommy performance, which wasn't on the original release. And that is just an absolute monster. That is just an incredible uh, piece of work. Because, you know, they've been playing for like an hour and an hour or so, and then they just play the entire Tommy, and then they play for another 45 minutes afterwards. And it's just the sheer physical feat of it. Um, and they just, I mean, live, they were just one of the most amazing bands, especially at that period of time. They were just and they weren't really anything like what they sounded like in the studio that's the weird thing you listen to the tommy album and it, the original release and it's very stripped back actually you know it's very bare and it's very it's quite delicate sounding mm. in a lot of places you know that the instrumentation is very sparse and very delicate and the singing is really uh, i mean it's good it's very good but you know there's like a lot of kind of delicate harmonies and stuff and then you listen to the live at leeds version and it's just this, just this juggernaut, you know, it's just this like, it's just like 18 wheeler truck. It's just like barreling towards you. It's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And that was what live at Leeds, was that 70 or 71? Oh, 70, I think. 70. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's 70. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, you know, they've been playing it live for whatever it was like three years by that point, but they didn't, they don't sound tired on live at Leeds. <laughs> they still sound into it, man. The sheer passion. Like, I mean, you literally, you can hear the strings rattling against the fretboards, you know, yeah. from how hard they're hitting them. I mean, it's just. And, you know, and Twistle, my dad was a bass player. So he right. was always, it's like, you got to check out this bass line. And one of the Who DVDs that I used to have had the entire concert, but just Entwistle. Okay. Isolated <laughs> was one of the special features. And right. Oh, my God. Yeah. As a drummer, of course, I was gravitated towards Moon. Yeah. Oh, fucking Uncle Ernie. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> fiddle about. Oh, <laughs> but, but otherwise, I love the man. He terrified me in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but that's interesting, though, isn't it? Because, like, there was that... He had such a reputation, which I think he very carefully cultivated, you know, of this complete maniac. But, like... All the reports in the film were like, he took it really, really seriously. You know, like he was in there on time. He turned up, he talked to Russell about how to play. He took notes, you know, he was really like focused on this performance. And it's weird because Uncle Ernie is like, I mean, I write about this in the book, but he's really, I mean, he is over the top. Obviously he is a caricature. He is, but like, but there's a really creepy undercurrent to him that's real. You know, there's a really like unpleasant kind of, 
skin crawling thing going on and it's like i i think i don't think moon gets nearly enough credit for that performance i think a lot of people just oh it's just moony you know overacting and being all crazy it's like nah man there's you could do that and be really really unconvincing you know you could do that and it could just be stupid it's not stupid it's creepy as fuck man it's really scary i you know i think i think he was good man he was good in that film he was Uh, and you know he he does he did he (laughs) he obviously did the wild the wild Keith Moon shit. Read any of his biographies. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, he was a madman. To be clear, I'm not. <laughs> I'm but, not saying. He, no. <laughs> but when he was working, he was working. That's right. That's right. Unless he was passed yeah. out because of too many tranquilizers. But. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think the movie thing was different because at the time he was kind of he was he was thinking about a Hollywood career. You know, he's thinking about either transitioning to acting or adding it as a as a second career. You know, so I think that was part of what was going on, and. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, and you'd imagine, wouldn't you? You've got you've got Keith Moon and Oliver Reed on the same set together. You know, you'd imagine that would be a recipe for just like wall to wall insanity, right? You just yeah, expect right. it to be. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure, like, you know, they had they, they had a shared dressing room. God knows, right? But when they were on set, again, all the reports are no. Once when they were when they were you know when they turned up and they had things to do, they they were there and they were present and they got it done, you know. And I mean, Reed in this film is fucking amazing. He's just incredible, I think. Uncle Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is green coat a thing in the UK? Is that is that an easily recognizable symbol of a person? Yeah, it is. You know, but it's weird. So uh, it's. It, I think it's. I'm. I'm. I'm a hundred percent. It's a piss take of, of red coats, which is a real ah. thing. So, <laughs> so there's a holiday camp chain called Butlins, but I think it's still going. And they certainly were around in this era, the kind of post-war eras when the, these holiday camps really, really became a thing. And it really was about like it was it was it was budget holidays for for working class families who otherwise couldn't afford to get away. So they were always or almost always seaside towns and they just build like a bunch of like the cheapest, you know, chalets and, you know, like tiny apartment type, you know, accommodation you could build. Um, and you go there with your family for a week and it would be like um I mean, there'd be like penny arcades everywhere. That was like every sort of 50 foot. You couldn't go without hearing the, the jangle of coins and the kind of thing. But they'd also do like, they'd have a cinema that would show free movies and they would, I mean, they'd be old, but you know, they'd be free and there'd, there'd be live entertainment in the evenings. They'd do like sort of, but it was always like, you know, like second string comedians or people like, like light entertainment people that were way, way past their sell by date and stuff like that. You know, it was really kind of down market, low rent sort of stuff um and and but the but the stuff in the film i mean like the lovely legs competition that's a real thing butlins used to i mean they don't do it anymore but they used to do that in that period of time they were and and all of the people who worked there were called red coats they all wore the red coats that was the thing so uh, yeah the green coats in the movie i'm i'm certain it's just a it's just a way of not getting sued by butlins basically <laughs> it's bernies we call it bernies bernies exactly yeah there you go so i mean it's you know uh, yeah that it was it was definitely a kind of Let's not get sued by Butlins, but yeah. damn. But everybody knows what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, definitely. And okay, so you said you've got some some uh, vivid childhood memories. Since we're at the beginning of the movie, I know we're not necessarily going to go through it point by point, but there are <laughs> points within it. Yeah. So how did you come to the Who? Uh, well, I mean, the Who I came to uh, considerably later. The Who I came to after the film. Um, so the film really was first because I was like seven or eight, uh, eight, I'm almost certain I worked it out at eight at my grandma's house. And 
um we were staying there and we were watching staying up late we we're allowed to watch telly as long as we didn't argue me and my sister so we you know sit there in silence and and, uh, and you know my mum didn't have a clue about what it was about but she liked the who she had a couple of the records she was like oh this will be good it's the who you know not knowing anything about tommy the story <laughs> <laughs> and uh it just uh, you know it just scared the absolute shit out of me it just just terrified me and uh i made her turn it off when uncle ernie came on which is like i mean you know bear in mind as an eight-year-old kid telling your mum to turn the telly off knowing that means you're going to bed that, you know that, that right this is serious business like that that was his try like and it's literally the only time in my life that i ever did that right so it was a pretty serious moment another who i came to a lot later the who i think probably it was probably my 20s i did a thing so i i, I was a kind of metalhead at school and i uh, it, was, it was kind of the guns and roses metallica and uh, you know i kind of liked nirvana but i wasn't really allowed to because they were crunch and they hated guns and roses so there was that whole thing um, and it wasn't until like I think my mid twenties I started just I just did a deep dive I started following the the, the just follow tracing the influences back you know so like Guns N' Roses would talk about the Sex Pistols and I'd listen to that and then uh, you know other bands would talk about you know talk about the Clash and then the Clash would talk about these other bands and you just you know you'd start tracing it all back um, and the Who just just turned up at some point on that journey you know at the same time probably around the same time I was digging into like the going through the, the rolling stones imperial period you know that kind of you know the like 60 i guess 67 to 72 period you know where they just couldn't put a foot wrong <laughs> and uh and yeah and the kinks i started sort of i think i had a kinks greatest hits around that time i was getting and then yeah the who just it would have been part of that journey you know it would have been part of that 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 trip um but i really connected with the who and i really connected with for me it's the core of it i mean the there, I don't want to. I don't want to misspeak here. They're all absolutely phenomenal musicians. That's part of what makes the Who such a special band, right? You, you're talking about four people, any one of which, in isolation, you could make a pretty strong case for being, you know, one of the best in the business at what they do, right? I mean, Moon's yeah. Moon's are pretty much a peerless drummer. We've already talked about Endless, so it's pretty much a peerless bass player. Especially, you know, you always have to remember the period in which they were working. They were inventing a lot of the stuff they were doing. They yeah. weren't just, you know. And Keith you know, Moon could do stuff that drum machines couldn't do at the time. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's just insane what that guy could do, right? Um, and you need you need a rhythm section that, that's solid when you're going to be trying to do some of the shit they were trying to do, especially live. Um, but for me, the, the qualities that drew me to The Who uh, were, it was it was the combination of, of Townsend's words being sung by Roger Daltrey because they're very very different people you know townsend's this kind of he's uh, i mean they're both they, they're both working class background don't get me wrong it's not that but but townsend definitely has this kind of art school sensibility because he went to art school you know and it did have an impact on him and he has this there's a tortured spirituality to townsend and there's also a sense there's a thing about townsend like there's a kind of alien quality to him there's a kind of ethereal you know there's a feeling that he's you know, there's a feeling that he's almost like an alien trapped in a human skin and he's trying to make sense of himself and the world around him and people around him. But there's always this kind of odd observing distance to his stuff somehow. You know, there's always this feeling of like just it's it's just such an earnest and desperate attempt to make sense of the world and of himself, you know, and of people, um, which I love. I mean, it's a lovely quality. But then you put that in the mouth of Roger Daltrey, who's this just really rough and tumble working class kid who was a real like proper street fighter, proper scrapper, real ambitious, you know um and it, it just it's just a it's just a fantastic combination you know because it allows Daltrey to articulate things that you know no disrespect to the guy he probably couldn't have come up with on his own but yeah. he brings this kind of anger 
and this attitude to it that, that might not have been there quite so much in the original conception. I mean, you think about uh, the one I always think about is, is behind blue eyes with this, where it's like, you know, from from Townsend perspective behind I know it's not Tommy, but, you know, it's a classic Who song from from Townsend's perspective behind blue eyes is about um, is about feeling isolated and about feeling feeling scared of being loved. That's what that's about for him. Whereas when Daltrey sings it, you know it's all about that middle eight. You know, if my fist clenches, crack it open you know, <laughs> before I use it and lose my soul. You hear the way Daltrey sings that shit, man. He means it. You know, he feels that on this kind of elemental level that's just... And I think I think for me, that was the thing about the Who I connected to. And it, it comes together on the live stuff for me. Live at Leeds. It's probably my favourite live recording of anything ever um and i love both versions i've got the original i've actually got the original live at leeds pressing on vinyl and i adore it but i do like the the remaster as well with the, with the extra stuff and the tommy uh the tommy set but i think yeah i think that that was so yeah i, I would have been in my mid-20s something like that and it just it just sort of it was part of that that deep dive as i say um, but that's what i connected to with those but i mean what about you what's your background with the who because you, you said your dad was into them Oh uh, yeah, yeah. My dad was really into them. I don't know if he ever saw them. I think he probably did. But um, hmm. one of one of my dad's hobbies or whatever was uh, making like stained glass windows or chandeliers or various okay. art projects. And he had a workshop off the side of our house, All and right. the Who was almost always blasting out. <laughs> uh, you know, I've got early childhood memories running around playing with my friends, and you know, like. Uh, you know, I'm a boy was one of the songs yeah. I was always playing. And, yeah. you know, uh, he had the records. I feel like they, we watched Tommy, a televised event of Tommy in the 1980s when I was a kid. Oh, okay. I, it's vague. I remember the red lights is pretty much all that I can see clearly. But, okay. yeah, well, my dad played the album for me and. Uh, cool. Pinball Wizard was, as a child, my favorite song. Um, <laughs> you know, it just yeah, sounded really cool true. and don't really know all the words and not really paying attention. Elton John is amazing you know, <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, he's... <laughs> giant out, fucking boots. And it's yeah. the movie is so trippy. If you know The Who, you can picture weird The Who stuff. But it's... <laughs> and I guess it's similar. It, it was 1975. Is that when the movie came out? Yeah, yeah, 75. They made it, yeah, they made it in 74, shot in 74, released in 75. So there's, I don't know, if it's. I guess it's just the era. It's weird as an American because most of my 1970s idea of the UK is from Monty Python. <laughs> right, yeah, sure. So it's like, okay, that opening shot, you know, with uh, VE Day or whatever, when there's all yeah. the flags and everybody celebrating, that looks like Monty Python's getting ready to sing a song. Right, um, yeah. But it's, you know, just the same time period, same same place. Um, yeah. <laughs> and maybe some of the same filmmakers and everything. But with The Who, when I started playing music, uh, when I started playing drums around 14, right? my dad said, you're going to find a lot of your favorite drummers, but you should really listen to Keith Moon and John Bonham. Yeah. And yeah, I got obsessed with Keith Moon. I just loved how good he was and how weird and wild he was, and that he had to fucking nail his drums down, and <laughs> <laughs> just all this stuff. And I think the first time I knowingly sat down and watched the movie, I was about twelve. 
Okay. Which was the perfect time to see Anne-Margaret. Yeah, that I imagine that might have been uh, life-changing. <laughs> it was. I, I'm not all into the beans thing. <laughs> but the soapy suds beforehand were nice and, and other things. This last time around watching, I noticed that the chocolates were called Black Beauties. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's something you don't notice as a child. No, it's a good, it's a nice little sight gag, isn't it? That kind of Russell throws in. I like yeah. It. I mean, you could write a book about this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. As I discovered, yeah. <laughs> like Anne-Margaret, so many famous people are in this. Oliver Reed, Anne-Margaret, Elton, Tina Turner as the Acid Queen. Oh, man. Doing her ass leg shake thing that she did. That... The... Just give me one night on the gym. performance is something i i mean i just uh, that that performance single-handedly turned me on to tina turner because i all i knew at that point in my life was like 80s tina turner and i just didn't care you know it was 80s to me it was 80s pop music and i just hated 80s pop music i, I still kind of have a i still get a visceral kind of angry reaction to that 80s synth sound i just don't you know there's something about it i find viscerally unappealing but yeah i saw that and i was like shit and i went and checked out you know checked out her kind of early motown stuff and it's amazing you know like she's this phenomenal artist um but i wouldn't have i wouldn't have connected with her at all if it hadn't been but you watch her and tommy and you're just like wow you know <laughs> like... phenomenal performance i can't imagine who played her in the the one we were talking about earlier but probably didn't top hers with the i i wouldn't you wouldn't want to have to <laughs> step in shoes which yeah, I mean, it's like really what's the you know tough gig eric clapton shows up yep for a second i i i got confused i'd forgotten he was in it i thought antwistle was playing the electric guitar because i knew it wasn't townsend and similar kind of beards didn't they yeah they they, they yeah. looked a lot more related than uh, i mean townsend kind of well they all kind of look unique but yeah antwistle's so unassuming yeah no, he's great. I mean, I, I, funnily enough, I did actually, I managed to see The Who with Entwistle. Um, uh, um, where was it? Uh, Wembley Arena. Um, and it wasn't, I don't think it was any, it was before Endless Wire. So it was just a tour, you know, it was just whatever. They just, it was just a sell some t-shirts tour, I guess. Um, and yeah, he's, he looked, I mean, by that point, obviously he was quite old. And actually, I didn't know it as I was watching him, but he'd actually pretty much lost his hearing by that point. Um, and he just, he just stood in front of the bass amp, you know, he just stood there and it was like, he was like a, he was like an anchor for the whole performance. You know, you've got all this kinetic energy all around him. I mean, you, and you imagine, of course, especially back in the heyday when you've got Moon, like just insanity behind, you know, barely contained by the drum kit, you know, Townsend. And, and the thing about Townsend as a guitar player is like, he's not, he's not a world-class guitar player, but like, he's just, he's just so fucking passionate, you know, like that's the, what makes it work. It's just the sheer energy that he brings to it when he is playing. Um, and of course, he is a world-class songwriter, so that helps. Um, and obviously, you know, Roger's doing Roger. You know, he's the rock god. You know, he's kind of swinging this... Swinging his giant micro... dick around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just being like, you know... <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> or maybe, you know, abs... since he was rough and tumble, it's a motorcycle chain or something, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a... it's a, But a, a definite don't fuck with me attitude either way. 
And then yeah. Entwistle was there. It's just this anchor. You know, he just stood there. And I mean, you know, in the, in the gig I saw him, he looked like Moses. You know, he had the white hair and the beard. And he looked like, yeah, he looked Old Testament. It was incredible. <laughs> and he just fucking nailed it. You know, without moving, without raising an eyebrow, without turning a hair, he just fucking nailed it every single time. It's just magic. Incredible. Finger picking too a lot. Or does <sighs> he always finger pick? I feel like... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I could never do that. <laughs> It looked painful, and yet he made it look effortless. I mean, that was the thing. And I guess, like, all the energy is just focused into what he's doing, right? That's why he didn't move, but it was great. And I think, I, I actually think it kind of helped with the staging. I think you needed you needed that kind of, you know, you didn't need that anchor. You needed that, <laughs> that, that ocean of, that little oasis of calm, you know? I was going to say workhorse, but oxes aren't horses. <laughs> I will say I was a little surprised this time around that Jack Nicholson singing what the fuck was that it's so like i would i remember i can't remember who i was talking to about this now we were joking about it, like it might have been on the they must be destroyed actually like it might have been lee who said like i wonder if there are people who like forgot they were in tommy themselves because it was it was the 70s you know <laughs> everyone was really high all the time and the, and the nicholson thing's particularly funny because he was literally like they had him for they had him for like it was something absurd like two or three days because he was he was on his way to to the Cannes film festival because chinatown was up for whatever and he was going for that. And they literally just got him in. They recorded the vocal one day. They filmed the scene with their Margaret the next. And then bang, he was off. You know, it was... The eyebrow sex. Yeah, that was just absolutely incredible scene. And uh, I, it was, it's fun because, you know, Townsend was all like, I don't know, you know, can he sing? <laughs> he was really worried about it. And apparently to this day, whenever the two of them meet, Nicholson gives uh, gives Townsend a bit of shit about that. You know, he's like, ha, ah, you thought I couldn't sing. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. It's just superb, isn't it? I can't. I can't imagine it really being done by somebody else. I don't know. No, it's... no. It is Pete Nicholson, right? Isn't it as well? Because it's Nicholson in like Nicholson is seventy four. Like I say, he's just come off of Chinatown, and it's like he's just. Is he just about to do Cuckoo's Nest? Yeah, I think Cuckoo's Nest was right around this time. That's one of my favorite movies of his. Yeah, um, yeah, that's an absolutely. Funnily enough, that's another childhood trauma movie. It's Cuckoo's Nest for me. Uh, uh, Cuckoo's Nest. That also came out in '75, I think. There we go. Okay, so he was probably like he might have. Yeah, he'd either he'd either just finished. No, more likely he was in the middle of it then, or he was just about to start it. That was the next film yeah. he did. I think that's right. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, Nicholson, Easy Rider had been out. Yep. You know. Yeah, yeah Chinatown was '74. Yeah. Uh, five easy pieces i mean he'd already done so much yeah carnal knowledge i remember finding that videotape on on the shelf in the house <laughs> okay yeah yeah like, that's okay a carnal knowledge <laughs> this sounds like i need to take this into my room yeah that's a hell of a because i ended up watching that as research for the book actually that was because i wanted to get a sense of, i needed to get a bit of a wider sense of Anne margaret so i watched that and i watched um the film she did with elvis uh viva las vegas Oh, um, right. Yeah. Which she's amazing in that, by the way, which is a, an incredibly stupid film, but she's great in it. And you do <laughs> see, I do wonder if Russell saw that. Because um, I, I know that Russell pushed for Anne Margaret in the film. And I know that, again, Townsend was quite resistant. He thought she was a bit musical theatre. But if you watch her performance in, in Viva Las Vegas, you can see, I can imagine a director with Russell's eye watching that and saying, no, she can do it. Because there's a few moments. I mean, because it, obviously it's, it is a musical, so she's doing a lot of the singing acting stuff that you'd have to do in tommy but you look at some of the emotional notes she hits in that and in that she's hitting them for laughs mainly you know 
yeah. but it's still like you can see the seeds of the Tommy performance in there and you can see you, yeah you can imagine as I say a director like Russell being like yeah she's got it she can get it done and of course she does I mean she is you know the entire movie falls apart without Anne Margaret's performance you know it, it, if you have someone in that role that can't sell it the entire thing just collapses into a sorry heap she's she's absolutely the linchpin performance of the whole film and I've I mean, have you ever seen anyone go for it like how Margaret goes for it and Tommy? <laughs> it's just... <sighs> well, she, she was in Bye Bye Birdie in the 60s, too. Right. That, right. that, was, that was a musical. Uh, it was a lot more comedy than, than Tommy. Well, I think I think every musical is more comedy than Tommy, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this... I, can... I just can't... I, I feel like I say this halfway through every episode or whatever. I don't know where we are in the conversation at some point in every episode i say if you haven't seen it oh for god's sake <laughs> go go check it out yeah. i mean the there's a decent version of the album on spotify yep. uh which i was listening to while i was reading your uh a little bit fucking tommy <laughs> <laughs> but i can see if you're not into it you can see some ridiculousness and i, I think you can see some ridiculousness if you are a fan but this yeah. is nineteen seventies. Yeah. This is yeah. a rock opera. <laughs> if you I mean, don't know what has, that means. Yeah. I mean it kinda has to be ridiculous or it's not gonna work, right? I mean I, I think the ridiculousness is part of the point. It, it's gotta be gigantic. It's gotta be completely over the top, you know. Um and I mean who who else are you gonna pick in seventy four to direct this if not Russell, right? Because, yeah. I mean, who else is capable of hitting exactly the notes you need him to hit? Just in terms of, like... Because Tommy is visual overload, right? As well as audio overload, it's visual overload as well. I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about Tina Turner and, and the Acid Queen sequence. Now, she's phenomenal in that. It's, a, it's a, like, a career-high performance from Tina Turner on that song. And, you know, I'm talking about the acting as well as the singing. She really goes for it. It's incredible. But it's also, just as a piece of filmmaking, it just it knocks your socks off. And it's... It, it's so far over the top you know like it's just it's like uh, next level over the top. the point at which the giant iron maiden with syringes in place of spikes and tommy's placed inside it and it starts spinning and then it slowly pulls back and the the the, the giant spinning iron maiden containing tommy being injected with acid disappears inside tina turner's mouth while she's singing you know it's like <laughs> <laughs> If, it's yeah. like, is this even happening, or have I been in spikes with something? That's and that's early enough in the movie that it's sort of the okay. If you didn't think we were serious, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's time to turn back if you can't handle. Absolutely, but it's I just love it. I love the energy of that. You know, I love the kind of. I mean, for me, it seems like Russell was a filmmaker for whom, like, the words "too far" just didn't exist. You know, like that wasn't. <laughs> He had no conception of too much over the top, too far. It was just like, nah, fuck it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he just puts his foot all the way down on the gas and just leaves it there. Just leaves it running, you know. Um, and you end up with, and yeah, so of course you end up with ridiculousness. Of course you end up with all kinds of, you know. I mean, you know, you could argue that the, the symbolism of Marilyn Monroe is the kind of, uh, you know, is the Madonna of cinema is kind of, you know, that's a bit on the nose. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, that's a, I've stolen that observation from Daniel Harper, by the way. I just want to give him the credit, but it's, but it's true. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know, like, yeah, that's a bit, you know, what, you know, it's a bit over the top, isn't it? It's a bit whatever. But, but, but then it's like, okay, but there's a, you know, 
40 foot plaster statue of Marilyn Monroe in the pose from the movie with the skirt up and it's just like and this like as the people are being led past the statue to to be healed by her to touch it to receive a healing you see there's a mirror <laughs> that she's standing on so you can see up the skirt it's like again it's like well this is so absurd it's kind of become something interesting again you know and then the communion is being you know you've got uh, you've got arthur brown as in the crazy world of arthur brown delivering the sermon and then and then the, the actual communion wafers are are blueies you know amphetamines and they're drinking johnny walker as the blood of christ it's like um <laughs> yeah this is absurd all right but it's like there's something about when you push it that far uh, and that consistently it, it kind of for me anyway it becomes kind of something else again you know it, it flips forward and I, don't, I don't think it quite loops back it's not that it doesn't loop back to being you know normal or whatever again it, it just finds a different space entirely that it's operating in and that's really exciting i mean that's really exciting to have a piece of cinema that does that because that's that's a very very rare thing for any kind of art to do really and i think tommy pulls that off a lot you know i would also add if you are dissuaded at all by the runtime of the movie it doesn't feel as long as it is no and that's one of the advantages of what we've been talking about i think is that um i mean the the flips you know the downside if you like is that i always come out I, I always feel exhausted at the end of watching tommy i always feel like i've really been through an experience and i need to kind of take a breath and chill for a little bit but the good news is you're right it's the the, the kinetic energy of the film is so powerful that it just uh i mean compelling is an overused word in 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 cinema criticism but it, you know tommy just defines it it demands your attention from the opening frame and it it defies you to look away it just it, you know it, it hooks you in completely um and it's yeah i mean it's, it's kinetically shot and kinetically cut i mean the editing is is absolutely astonishing on it as well um but yeah it's a very weird thing when you get to the end you are both exhausted and yet also you just feel like wow was that you know it that flew by you know i feel what you're saying about being exhausted i i went to bed an hour or two earlier than usual after watching it last night <laughs> just yeah well it just i think it just throws so much at you i can't think of many movies that, that throw as much i mean literally as much per frame at you as this film does i mean one of the things i had to do obviously for the book once i'd written uh, you know i had the I had the structure written and i had the the chapters written i had to go back through and select images um because one of the things that you know dreamhouse do is dreamhouse press do is they they you know they use stills from the film throughout the text so you've got these reference points so I had to go back and find the images that I wanted for the uh, for each chapter. And sometimes I wanted two or three, depending on what I was talking about. You know, if I had a specific shot that I described in the text, then obviously I wanted to have a representation of that shot. And one of the things about doing that, just watching it and, you know, watching it with that set of eyes on, if you like, you know, you're watching it for a specific purpose. You're trying to find the frames you're looking for. Just there's, there's very few frames you couldn't include if you wanted to, you know, like it's just beautifully, beautifully shot. Uh, and the shot composition is insanely intelligent. Like, it's just so, so good. And it's like, again, I think that's something about Russell that maybe gets overlooked in the energy of it, is that it's also just on a frame-by-frame -frame basis, the guy was an absolute master at pointing the camera at exactly what it needed to be pointed at, you know, in any given moment. And it, it's just incredible. Time and time again, I just look at the freeze frame and I just be like, you could, you could put that on a poster. You know, you could use that to advertise this film because it's so perfect. And it was, you know, 
almost any time you hit pause, you ended up with a shot like that. It was absurd. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's an interesting, it is an interesting facet of it that I think, you know, it was, it was a, it was a good exercise to go through and it is something that I think gave me a, a better insight into Russell as a filmmaker. Cause the trouble that kind of thing is that is the kind of technique stuff that mostly works on you on a subconscious level. And you, unless you have a reason to be looking for it, you won't spot it consciously because it's not how any of us watch movies, right? <laughs> Most of the time, it's not what we watch movies for, nor should we. Um, but so, yeah, it was it was really good to go through exercise and be like, okay, that's it. But I think, yeah, I think a side effect of that is part of your exhaustion comes from that. It's just, it is overload, you know, it's saturation overload. And that's not just about the energy, that's about what you're seeing. You know, that's about the images that you're seeing because he was, he was so good at putting those together. And yeah i uh i had seen one of the names of the cinematographers looked a little familiar and i finally figured it out yesterday that they uh ronnie taylor used to work with dario argento a lot right right yep that makes sense yep but and and i could (laughs) i'm sure argento was happy to have someone who worked on tommy with his shit because <laughs> I mean, you throw yeah. in some more blood and right. there you go. Yeah. But you feel like it's somebody who understands the aesthetic you're going through. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was, as we were, as I was talking, I was just thinking about, thinking about how few movies have that level of energy. So I'm the only, I think the only other director that immediately came to mind for me was maybe Oliver Stone, like in his Imperial phase, you know, so like the, the JFK natural born killers, Nixon phase. When he was, he was just a total madman, you know, and just, I mean, Natural Born Killers is kind of the one for that, I guess, really. But it's very, very rare you get that level of, yeah, that level of kind of kinetic energy on the screen. And and the thing is then, it's the way that that marries up with the kinetic energy of the music. And that really does create something unique. Because there aren't, I mean, rock operas aren't really a thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, Tommy's kind of it, really. Tommy and not even exact, not even a good comparison, but American Idiot later. Right. Well, I mean, even the, the 30 thing years is, later. Yeah. And like, and the thing is like, even Quadrophenia is not really a rock opera in the same way that Tommy is, you know, mm. even by the same artist. It's not, it isn't really, it's a double album. I mean, it's great. I love Quadrophenia. I think it's fantastic, but it's not, it's not really a rock opera in the, in the way that Tommy is. A unique story. With yeah. So much fucking symbolism that you could write a book about it. <laughs> this is, this is true. So much you get on now. No, I think yeah, it's it's and and actually that's I mean that's the thing about it, isn't it? When you think about operatic, that's the other thing about Tommy that does separate out even from even from something like Quadrophenia by the same by the same artist. You know, Quadrophenia is a very Quadrophenia is a very personal story. You know, it's about it's about a kid and it's about a kid's life and it's it's about his journey and it's a it's a concept album and it's it, again it's great. I love Quadrophenia. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It kind of I think it is a little unfortunate that it lives in the shadow of Tommy in some ways because it's it's a very very different beast and it maybe doesn't get as much love as it deserves because of because of the behemoth that tommy became but it's a, it's different and it doesn't have that like you said you, you know operatic i mean there's the kind of there's a you know there's almost like the dramatic roots of of the tommy story are, are almost like greek tragedy especially this version of it i mean the, the idea of the you know the father being murdered by the mother's new lover that's shakespeare right that's the right. greeks that's, that's that's a story as old as the hills right hamlet playing playing pinball 
Right. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 you know, Hamlet's madness versus Tommy's deaf, dumb and blind trauma. Right. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a traumatic response to, to seeing, a, you know, kind of that, that fratricide. Right. <laughs> and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that, that that's what separates, that's what makes Tommy such a unique kind of item and this film such a unique kind of gem of a piece of work because it's it's the it's a confluence of all of the stuff we've talked about and then also it is actually an opera in the sense that firstly there's no there's no break in the singing there's no acting that doesn't also involve a sung word or phrase or, or line you know there's no kind of which means there's no moment where the energy comes down right because yeah. musicals musicals have a have a rhythm to them a very specific rhythm and it's you know they build the, to a crescendo of emotion and then bam you got the song and then and then the energy drops back again and you have more conversation and dialogue and you move the you move the story forward um the songs almost never move the story forward they're there to punctuate the big emotional moments but with tommy it's all song so it's all big emotional moments there is no, like and the story somehow got to happen at the same time um and it's just and the other thing is like it's interesting because like especially when you listen to the original album like the story itself actually is quite sparse there are there are quite large gaps like narrative gaps in the original album in terms of what happens like i mean you know there's no kind of i mean i'm always like there's no like murder mystery right they just kill they just kill the guy and then that's it it just kind of happens you know <laughs> there's no kind of come up and there's no, no point does you know plot of the yard turn up and start asking questions yeah um it's just, you don't even know what they did with the body no and it's like uh, you know what what age is tommy at which he you know comes back to himself that's not really clear the the sequencing of when the pinball wizard stuff happens on the album is different to the movie as well and there's, there's just this i mean it's not a criticism it's not a problem the album works on its own terms fine but there are there are narrative gaps and it's interesting how, I mean, obviously part of what happened with the movie was Russell went back to Townsend and said, I need more material. I need more songs. And the, you know, we talked about it earlier. The holiday camp's a great example of that. That's, that's not in the original uh, album, the, the Bernie's holiday camp. That was something that Russell needed and knew he needed for the film to work. So, you know, Russell went to Townsend and said, actually, I need, I need some additional stuff. Most of the additional material is in the first half an hour. And that was one of them. Uh, you know, I need to get this, this sense of where, um, where Uncle Frank comes from, because the other big change that Russell made to the Townsend version was in the original version, the father murders the lover. Um, in the album version, so although it's not super clear, but that was the intention. Um, but Russell, I think, as as a as a a guy who understood storytelling perhaps a little better than Townsend, he understood that it was far more interesting to have it happen the other way around. You know, to 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 put it in that classical kind of you know the the lover murdering the father the the death of the father in front of tommy being really important you know um so he he requested that you know that change be made to the story and it's really funny because townsend still doesn't get that i love that townsend in, on the on the tommy dvd townsend's like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter father the lover it doesn't matter which one it is we changed it back for the stage show it doesn't matter and it's like <sighs> <laughs> like i wrote you know, it it like, was fine the way i wrote it yeah and it's like the thing about that for me is like you can make a case for either version, right? You really can. You can make a case for it being the father because you want to avoid the Greek tragedy connotations and you want to just go down a particular route, or you make the case for Uncle Frank because that's the route you want to go down. But you can't say it doesn't matter because it, it changes the story. It changes the valence of the whole thing. And, I mean, it's really hard to imagine Tommy the movie working without Uncle Frank as this kind of antagonistic character, right, as this villain, really. Um, 
and yet in the original story that there wasn't an uncle frank and that's really i mean that that's kind of hard to wrap your head around i think when you really think about how the movie plays out you know yeah and of course most of the additional material a lot of the additional material hangs on that it's around uncle frank and fleshing him out as a character but the other thing that's weird about that is then what you have to remember is most of the lines that uncle frank sings in the original version they were sung by tommy's dad and therefore were presumably meant with complete sincerity whereas you look at how oliver reed delivers some of that stuff especially when they're when they're millionaires and then tommy's mum's still really upset so he's trying to figure out ways to fix tommy but you get this, in, this total sense of the performance that you know reed doesn't i mean uncle frank doesn't give a shit about whether or not tommy gets better he just doesn't want Anne margaret to be pissed off with him you know he gets less and less involved in what he's saying especially you know about do you think it's okay to leave him with blank like yeah yeah oh yeah yeah no that's great because that, that changes again that completely changes the valence of those those moments where it's you know a couple persuading each other that it's okay whereas in those you're right uncle frank he's just like just get out the fucking door just get me out of this fucking house <laughs> this Even idiot kid the fuck i don't care exactly i just i just want to go out and pretend we're a normal couple for half an hour and not have to deal with this shit you know um so yeah i think that's uh yeah it totally changes it um and it adds this it adds this whole as you said it's kind of operating with shakespearean level of symbolism like in a in a story that is already not short on symbolism right because <laughs> the other thing it's about the other thing tommy's about and this is why i wanted to talk to you about this particularly for this podcast because it's about and again i write about this in the in the book in more detail but it's about the national the, the foundational myth of the united kingdom as as the you know the plucky underdog from world war Two. you know that's um we really, as a nation, we don't look back any further than World War II anymore. I mean, we we look at World War One in a kind of abstract way because we've got the war poets and that stuff was kind of amazing. And but World War One is just kind of this. Uh, yes, well, you know, everyone was kind of stupid and we didn't really know how to fight wars with machine guns, so it was terrible and millions of people died. And it was horrible, but th that's it. You know, there's no political analysis of what caused it. But World War Two is different because World War Two we were the goodies. You know, we were unambiguously the good guys because the Nazis were the bad guys, and, and you know nazis are bad guys i'm not saying that by the way just to be crystal clear on that i agree with that assessment uh punch nazis but the point is that, that that's the last time we could look at ourselves and say oh yeah we, we were the good guys you know because because you go back before world war one you've got colonialism and actually we weren't the good guys we we kind of were the nazis you know we were we invented concentration cramps in you know in in africa and in the boer war and we were vile you know we and china and the opium wars and the strip mining of india and it's just i mean ugh, you know so we we can't talk about any of that stuff because it's it's embarrassing and it doesn't make us feel good but world war ii is okay world war ii is good because we were on our own uh europe got taken over the germans the nazis were coming um and this plucky little island was standing alone against you know blah 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 and it, look and and as you may guess from that obviously like, there's all kinds of bullshit going on with that right like we don't get through world war ii without millions of russians bleeding to death on the on the eastern front you know we don't get through world war ii without masses and masses of american intervention in terms of arms and munitions and food even before the troops came in and the normandy landings like there's no way we never stood alone you know that's it's a myth but that's the point it's a myth and it's a myth that a lot of the people who lived through it believe and specifically and this is where it ties in with tommy it's a myth that that the who believed or at least that certainly the roger daltrey believes he talks about it a lot in interviews even now um there was a thing about there was a thing about growing up in the shadow of the blitz he's too young to remember the blitz itself 
but he remembers as my parents remember my mother remembers growing up in london you know surrounded by bomb sites there were craters everywhere there were there were demolished buildings you know that was just a just just background noise right just a feature of everyday life walking to school you know going to the shops playing around town whatever you know you'd see buildings that were demolished um and i think there's something about the psychological impact that has on you as a kid and it is distinct from the psychological impact of surviving war itself you know because you've seen it if you've if you've been in it or you've been around it or you 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 know you've you've lived through it and and you have the memory of that and that has its own i mean christ knows that has its own impacts right there's ptsd there's all that kind of stuff i'm not saying that it's i'm not saying that it's better or anything i'm not making a value judgment but it is tangibly different from growing up in an environment where you're surrounded by this stuff but you weren't part of it and it's something that daltry talks about a lot it's about the who was and I love this because, like, the, just the honesty of this statement, right? Because it isn't, it doesn't reflect very well on him. But you know, downtown, he would say, Daltrey would say, the who was our war. It was our way of establishing our adulthood. It was our way of testing ourselves. It was our way because every, you know, every previous generation had a water fight. We didn't have a water fight, so we had to find our own way of establishing who we were, of of figuring out what manhood was, you know, and of, and it's like, I mean, like, obviously, you and I, as as you know. 21st century millennials i mean we could gen x's i guess you know we could we could pick that apart for the many myriad ways that's a problematic sort of <laughs> position, right it's like there's really a lot of problems with that true but it's honest right you understand it you understand what he's trying to say and you understand where the impulse comes from and you know and he th- means it even oh god yeah yeah that's right no yeah exactly yeah it's a completely sincere position sincerely believed sincerely held uh, and not malicious, not, you know, it's, it's not calculated. Um, but I think about that a lot because Tommy, you know, especially the first half an hour of the film, it spends a lot of time with this imagery. You know, the poppy is everywhere, which is the symbol of the, the, the British Legion, you know, the which is World War One, but it, it's linked to World War Two as well and the war dead. You know, it's a, I mean, that's just something that if you grow up in, in England, in Britain, I think, I think if you grow up in, you know, even in the regions, the, the nations, you still, you know, you know what the poppy is. You know about it from childhood, because um, you have Remembrance Day services in schools and stuff like that. You know, it's a it's a big deal. Um, and the the, and, the memorial is a giant bomb. <laughs> yeah, the the memorials don't don't look like giant bombs, but but there are memorials. I mean, there are stone memorials at pretty much every every church in the country. You know, I mean, there really are. Like there are. I think I think I think it's. I'd be amazed if you could go to any any church building that that dates back to to World War Two or before World War One or before that does not have a memorial to the war dead outside it or nearby. It is absolutely a feature of of the landscape, you know. And you do see them. You'll see them out because they're often there'll be separate monuments outside of the main church building. You know, they'll be out in public square or whatever. Um, almost every almost every village. I mean, this, never mind towns. Almost every village has a has a war memorial somewhere in it. I would imagine churches also doubled as bomb shelters during the Blitz. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, w- I would imagine so. Yeah, in the in the cities, um, it, it seems it seems plausible. Certainly, yeah. Um, but they certainly, but absolutely, they were. You know, for obvious reasons, they were they were sites of commemoration. So you you know, throughout the the immediate post war period, you'd have these war memorials go up, and they are they're just they're just everywhere. They're just a part of the, the part of the landscape. I, I mean, to the point that so ubiquitous, you kind of stop seeing them. You know. 
you just kind of accept that they're there and that's it's an interesting thing about the movie one of the things when it does this you know I mean, yeah okay so it's it's a ken russell movie so it looks like a bomb and that's that's fine but but just the act of pointing a camera at a war memorial is kind of weird because you look at it and you're like oh right because I, I see them every day you know i just see them everywhere every day i've grown up it's like, oh right but that, that's actually a thing that that's there you know that's and it's yeah it's it's an odd and i, I just wonder i mean i one of the things that i keep hearing from people who are in favor of brexit i, I keep hearing this time and time again and it it, it you know it comes up too often to be accidental and you also hear it with the people who've really pushed it you know you hear it with the nigel farage types who talk about this stuff uh enthusiastically uh when people are being kind of like you know this is going to completely screw our economy for an entire generation um and worse that they say oh you know we survived the blitz we'll survive brexit <laughs> i mean seriously and they'll say it with no hint of irony whatsoever no sense of you know um perspective or shame or, or concern even really they really mean it no we survived the blitz we survived brexit it's you know the british spirit the the dunkirk spirit we can you know we can take whatever they can throw at us and it's like okay but the blitz wasn't self-inflicted we weren't yeah. bombing ourselves we didn't decide to do it and when you say we survived the blitz i'm pretty sure there was a civilian body count in the tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands so we didn't all survived the blitz actually quite a lot of us didn't yeah. And it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm here and all that, that's all that matters. But I think it comes back to this national myth. I think it comes back to this this thing. And it, the generational divide is really interesting here too, because you've got Russell as the filmmaker who actually has living memory of the Blitz. There's a, there's a, there's a bit on the commentary track where he talks about, you know, when uh, Anne Margaret's in that, in that uh, sleeping under the table in that bomb shower. Oh, yeah. It's the bombs of all it. Well, Russell has a childhood memory of sleeping in one of those beds. Okay. So he, 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 that was a, that was his childhood experience. That was a real thing that he experienced. Um, but again, Townsend, like, you know, like Daltrey, like, like that generation, like my parents' generation, they, they didn't, they don't have any memory of that. They grew up afterwards. You know, they, were, they were born afterwards and they grew up afterwards. So they don't have that same kind of, that same rooted memory. But, but when you look at, when you look at the figures for the people who in this country who voted for Brexit, so there's a clear trend the older people got, the more likely they were to vote for Brexit. And this is the same trend, you know, the older people are, the more likely they are to vote for Conservative parties. There's no, no real surprise there. But the interesting thing with the, the figures, what it masks is when you look at those figures, there's a sudden, very, very rapid drop-off once you get to people who are old enough to have actually lived through World War II. Now, there aren't a huge number of them left anymore, but when you get to that demographic, suddenly a huge numbers of them voted Remain. And yeah. it's because they actually remember why the whole project was kicked off in the first place, right? It really is. It's because they remember it. And they were like, no, we're not going, no, we're not going back to that. We are not going back to antagonism with our neighbors. This was a project of peace and we are not going back. Yeah, um, uh, the fucking, the whole, the Ireland thing is something I've been <laughs> focused on with Brexit is right. I mean, <laughs> well, I'm glad someone's paying attention because it didn't get any airing at all during the debate, during the campaign, during the period where we were voting on this issue that was going to potentially tear apart the United Kingdom and reunify Ireland. No one saw fit to even discuss it. So I'm glad someone's paying attention because Christ turns out it's quite important. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? I, the first thing I knew about Ireland was the 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 slight skirmish people might have heard about. <laughs> and just imagining trying to make a hard border on that again. I mean, it took for fucking ever to get it to where it is now. Yeah, yeah and I mean, it, it, it's, I don't know, the cynic in me, there's almost a thing about, like, it is, it is pretty much the only 
at this point, I would say it's the only achievement of the Blair government, the New Labour era, that kind of hasn't been subsequently tarnished by <laughs> by, by by like so like you know because obviously there's the Iraq War that's kind of a bit of a downer on the Blair legacy. Uh, it turns out all those public-private finance initiatives to build hospitals. Turns out, not such a good idea. Turns out, really, really expensive, and you end up with crappy hospitals. So that's a bit of a downer. Um, didn't actually close the income gap. Actually did increase child poverty, albeit much slower than under the Tories. So, you know, like, you look at the Blair legacy, and there's a lot of things where it's like they talked a good talk, but actually didn't really deliver, or in, in the case of Iraq, just went and did crazy, stupid things. And it is like you do you do always end up coming back to the Good Friday Agreement saying, okay, well, they did at least... <laughs> It did nail that. And that was a big fucking deal because that was really, really hard to do. And that was something that none of us thought would happen in our lifetimes. We just didn't think you'd ever find any kind of peaceful solution to, to that situation that was going to stick. And it has stuck. It's stuck for 20 years. That's that's amazing. And then and then along comes Brexit. You know, along comes this insane <laughs> referendum. Oh, that's just, you know. 2016 was the year of bad choices. <laughs> it was. And we've just had, ever since then, we've just had three years of increasingly, you know, uh, bad consequences, right? It's just, oh, Jesus Christ. Vicariously, I, I also would have voted to remain had I been a citizen. Sure. But vicariously watching from the States, I hope, and I know it's such a long shot, but I, every time I hear talk of another referendum, yeah. I'm like, yeah, if, if you can undo it, that's a win for all of us that yeah. wish we could unelect Trump. <laughs> you know like yeah. Yeah, i yeah, see yeah. brexit as the uk's trump it's it, it threatening the economy yeah. it's based yeah. around racism yep uh, yeah the people no, that are about is. it are really really about it yeah it, it, it's interesting there, there are a lot of parallels there and there was i mean it was sold it was sold largely on lies so there's yeah, i don't know if that sounds familiar at all but yeah. um cambridge analytica had a hand in both that, yeah man jeez they got a lot to answer for don't they um so yeah it's i mean it is and i think it's i mean there was some i can't remember the name of the guy some i saw some political analysts talking about the the political crisis in the west and particularly the uk and and america and i mean i you know i want to preface this by saying i don't it's not a competition or anything i'm not <laughs> you know I don't, I don't know i don't have a dog in this fight i mean whatever but he was so he said that he actually thought that at this point Although the although there were aspects of the American crisis that was more severe, that the UK situation was probably more acute. And what he meant by that was that the just it's not just that it's obviously a car crash. It's that there doesn't actually appear to be any way at all to implement it in a way that's not going to be a complete disaster. You know, like it's just because of the way because of the way Parliament is is currently constituted because of the, the relative numbers on both sides of the debate. I mean, there basically just isn't a majority for anything. Okay. You know, like they just can't agree on a single fucking thing. So <laughs> the only thing they can agree on just, and like by two or three votes is that there shouldn't be no deal under any circumstances. And the only slight problem with that is unless we come up with an alternative, that's the default. So it's like, so we voted against the default. Okay. But that's that's it. And, it. and it's completely intractable because you've not got the, the balance of power is so fine um, and the and the splits just don't respect party lines. That's the thing. This is not um, 
I was going to say it's not a party political issue. It, I mean, it, it it cuts across party lines. There are members of the Labour Party who will vote for for leave stuff, and there are Conservatives who will vote for Remain type positions. So there's there's that problem. I think it is compounded by the fact that we've got Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party um, because he is an incredibly divisive figure. He is absolutely adored by the membership of the of the party. I mean completely adored i've never seen anything like it um there is no previous leader of the labor party who's had people walking around with t-shirts with their face on or their name on that's just i've never seen anything like that that's you know unprecedented and crowds of people singing their name i mean it's just it's a bit weird to be honest for me i'm I'm a bit i'm a little bit weirded out by it it doesn't it doesn't compute we're normally tolerated at best you know the idea that but he is also absolutely hated despised feared uh by by anyone sort of centre right onwards really. They really think he's the Antichrist. They really think he's, you know, um you know, this Stalinist control freak and possibly anti Semite into the bargain, which is, you know. So so what that means is he's actually been trying to put forward a compromise deal that will take us out whilst doing minimal damage. And that there is no way of taking us out without doing us damage. There is a difference between losing two percent of your economy and eight percent right <laughs> you know? when you hear 4.9 and five percent the number is probably 28 29 as high as 35 in fact i even heard recently 42 percent well well which one is it then because a 4.9 percent rate might result in a cautiously constrictive monetary policy whereas a 42 percent rate might result in the purge there is a difference i'd rather not do either obviously but but the trouble is because he's jeremy corbyn no tory will ever vote for it even if it's actually what they want because purely because it's got his name on it and that's that's where that's what we've been reduced to at this point and now we've got a fucking leadership contest that's going to be decided by members of the conservative party so two hundred thousand people two hundred thousand of our most in my opinion insane citizens right because they're paid to be members of the conservative party so these are not normal people are going to be picking our prime minister, you know, and our choices are between uh, Boris Johnson, who is basically what Donald Trump would be if he'd had a private British education <laughs> and and a guy who wants to reintroduce fox hunting and the guy who wants to reintroduce fox hunting is the least bad option of the two and is almost certainly going to lose. So, you know, we're doing great, really. Um, <laughs> Woo! Yeah, it's bonkers. And, and and like I say, the thing about it is that's so crazy is that you can't, and I've never really, I just, I can't see a route through. I can't see a route through to a second referendum, but I can't see a route through to us leaving, but I can't see a route through to us remaining. Like, I just, I, it, I can't make sense of it. And I've never, I've never seen a political landscape like it. I really haven't. Um, and, and so we just, I just saw the headline today that an ex-head of MI6 described this as having a, the United Kingdom was currently in the middle of a, uh, in terms of its political class, it's currently in the middle of having a nervous breakdown on the world stage. You know, that's that's the ex-head of MI6. And you think, like, yeah, that's that's not far off, actually. <laughs> it's, it's, it's insane. And, you know, and, like, Labour's staking everything on a second election, um, which, sure, a new general election might be nice, but I don't like the look at the polling at the moment, because now we've got the Brexit party, which have come out of nowhere, which is Nigel Farage's new thing and they're they're polling uh you know anywhere between 20 and 30 percent and we've you know you may be familiar with this first past the post system so the problem with the first past the post system is 
if you poll 20%, you get no representation. If you poll 40%, you win every fucking seat, right? <laughs> it's just, it's really, really crap. And like, I'd like to think we're still sane enough that, that we'll hang on and the Brexit party won't get a breakthrough. Um, but you'll understand my confidence levels aren't too high, given the history of election results in our respective countries over the last two or three years. Yeah. You understand why I'm not feeling super stoked about, yeah, let's just, let's just throw it back to the people. What's the worst that could happen? Is that a dare? <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't really. <laughs> I don't want to know. If this isn't rock bottom, I don't know. I, can, I don't know what what else I can take. And the yeah. polls are frustrating because talking about even the exit polls on election day had Trump losing because even yeah. some people that voted for him wouldn't say. I mean, Trump's victory was, a you know, assuming we're still in a position to be writing books, they're, they're going to be writing books about it for a long time. That yeah. that particular win was such a such a perfect storm. It showed holes in his residency has also mm. shown holes in the way things work. You know, a lot of stuff yeah. was set up on the honor system of, yes, we will do this. There's not a whole yeah. lot that can force th some things to happen. You know, there's uh, there's like a lot of shit about the Hatch Act being talked about, which prevents government employees using their official position to campaign politically. Sure. And, but the person in charge of punishing people for violating the Hatch Act is Trump. <laughs> mm. and he says you know punishing people for breaking the law in his administration is a violation of their free speech yep there you go and the elect the electoral college which was set yep. up back when not everybody could vote or when yeah. they just wanted rich white people to vote even hillary everybody hates her clinton got three million more votes than trump had yeah but he had 80,000 votes split between three states got yep. him that magical number. Um, we're, I think we're kind of close to the end. Yep. Um, yes, yeah, so at the point at which I'm, you know, howling at the moon about the state of British politics and Brexit. <laughs> Any podcast I do, that's where I degenerate to after about the, the hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> if we keep going another half an hour, it'll just be sobbing. Um, it is something to think about and the the cult of personality and the fervor with which tommy is followed yeah i think sort of feeds into that brexit trumpism boris johnson not that yeah, tommy's absolutely. that kind of character um but... well no but there is a reason he's got the name tommy right and this is why that our current you know uh right-wing fascist fuckhead of choice calls himself tommy as well tommy robinson of the english defense league who i learned today has just been found guilty of uh of uh obstruction of justice was it obstruction of justice or was it uh, attempting to disrupt a trial or anyway he could be getting two years so you know i've had worse days this is absolute scum i just i'll very briefly just just for those because there's no reason on earth you should be familiar with this 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 you know this uh fleck of humanity but um he's a so the english defense league are a, a far right you know street fascist organization in the uk they've never they've never even tried to get elected not like the british national party who were fascist that pretended not to be these guys have always been a street organization and tommy robinson basically founded them led them for a number of years and then you know officially disavowed it but actually carried on with the campaigning uh, in other in other ways um, and he's still very much a kind of figurehead for that whole kind of, you know, for the far right street movement in the UK. Um, and what he was doing was attending trials of uh, 
um, where a, a grooming gang, uh, you know, uh, had been accused of, of, um, and were on trial for for their crimes of, you know, grooming children for, you know, committing sex crimes. A horrible, horrible case, and they were all convicted. But he decided what he needed to do was hang around outside the trial, filming the defendants as they came in and asking them pointed questions. Um, and you know, leaving aside the, the dubious morality of doing that, it also happens to potentially be prejudicial to the trial itself because, of course, he's filming it and it's going out live on Facebook. And there's there's the real chance that that could therefore influence the trial, influence the jury, and and end up with a mistrial. So, of course, for a man who claims to care so much about you know saving uh, saving our our children and young teenagers from the blight of of being attacked by paedophiles, he uh, you know took action that made it materially more likely that a bunch of paedophiles would actually get away with it and not be convicted by prejudicing the trial. So, uh, but the good news is he's just been convicted by that. It was, he was convicted initially, it was appealed, but he's, the appeal's just gone through and he was he was reconvicted, if you will, or rather the conviction was reaffirmed and he could spend up to two years in prison and that's very nice. But the reason he calls himself Tommy, which is where we started, was his actual real life name is, is Stephen Yaxley Lemon, but he calls himself Tommy Robinson. And the reason is because Tommy is a term that was coined in World War Two to describe British British soldiers. Actually, I think it's World War One. British soldiers were called Tommy, so it's it's a quintessentially kind of uh, British thing. It has very strong military connotations. It has very strong working class connotations, and Townsend picked it for the same reasons. That's why Tommy is called Tommy. It's meant to be representative of that working class everyman post World War Two. So yeah. Um, it, it it's the same sim it is the same symbolism that that's been you know that, that Townsend was picking for I think for laudable reasons for obviously for the for the rock opera but have become this kind of yeah unfortunately this far right linchpin uh, symbol that's been kind of co-opted that way anyway which is uh, really depressing <laughs> so thanks for that um, yeah yeah that cheered me up <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say thank you man for for your time. Thank you in advance for the book that you've written. Oh. <laughs> well, that, thank you. That's incredible. I mean, I we really, really must do this more often because I really enjoy this conversation. So, I mean, I thank you for, for allowing me to come back on after a, an unforgivably long gap, and we will not leave it as long next time. Um, I've already got a couple of ideas, but yeah. But no, thank you. Thank you for having me on, and I, I hope – yeah, I hope people do enjoy the book when it comes out. I hope people get a lot out of it. I had, a, I had an incredible time writing it. I really did, and uh, I learned a lot. Uh, about the film and a fair bit about myself actually in the process because I had to dig pretty deep uh, for some of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, most of all, I just hope it's enjoyable. I hope it's entertaining because that's the point. Uh, it's going to be fun and I hope it, you know, it, it, if I turn even one person on towards watching Tommy and they end up traumatizing themselves as a result, yeah. I consider that time very well spent. Hell yeah. Oh, what's the, what's the book called again? Uh, it's just called Tommy uh, by Kit Power. So, it, and it's published by Electric Dreamhouse Press. So, um, and they're a division of PS Publishing. So if you Google either PS Publishing or Electric Dreamhouse Press, you should find it remarkably quickly. Um, or, you know, I'm, I'm Kit Conzo on Twitter, connect it through my social media. You'll find it that way because I, I can't shut up about it at the moment. <laughs> I'm banging on about it every opportunity. Oh, good. I'm going to try to get this out by the release of, of the book. But it, it, whenever look, you're it, hearing this, find yeah. the book. Thank you. Yeah. And hit me up. Let me know what you think about it too, genuinely. I'm always interested in hearing back from people. So yeah, that'd be great. But um no man, thank you. Thank you so much. As I say, it's been it's been an unforgivably long, long interval and we will not leave it as long next time. I've already got, got ideas, so we'll, we'll chat about that. But thanks for having me back. I wonder what the the bit of wisdom would be from Tommy. Knock first. <laughs>
like don't don't fuck green coats i don't know yeah. um, <laughs> semi-seriously i think for me it would probably be like um something along the lines of the the path to spiritual alignment is always personal and it can't be replicated you know like you can't the mistake is always to to assume a universal from a particular experience you know it's not it's not that you as an individual can't find something that that defines your life and gives it meaning but you can't assume that your meaning will apply to anybody else you know? and every time you do you're gonna fuck it up and and fuck yourself up and other people so don't do it i think that's but that might have been the intended message by the way that's just what i get from it well that's the good thing about art i had written down something that you had said at the beginning like good art will make you think great art will make you feel tremendous art will fuck you up but good <laughs> yep <laughs> yep yeah tommy is tremendous art yeah i stand by that statement and uh, speaking of the Blitz, everybody, don't forget to duck and cover. <laughs> you think we look pretty good together? You think my shoes are me?
If you enjoyed this show, then make sure you check out the other great shows on the Legion Podcast Network, like Cinema PsyOps, Cinema Beef, Devour the Podcasts, Duncan and Bo Come Correct, Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, Friday the 13th, Get Slayed, The Hell Ming Power Hour, Hello, This is the Doom Show, Hero Hero Ghost Show, Kill the Cast, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry Hates Action, Legion After Dark, Metal Health, Obsessive Cinema, Discourse, Pick Six Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found.